HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink, inspiring public curiosity about food. Learn more at mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You can find a crowdfunding platform for just about anything these days, including the family farm, coming up on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I'm a thousand percent sure that every single one of them is listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today, we have two gentlemen all the way from Texas sitting here in New York in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And they have a very interesting company called Harvest Returns, which is crowdfunding for farms. And I'm really interested by the topic. I don't know a huge amount about it, so I'm looking forward to learning and listening. But before we get into the details of uh, Money for the Farm, we're going to do like we always do and go around the shipping container and talk about apps, favorite apps, new ones. We're completely addicted to old favorites that have been living on the home screen for 10 years. The only rule, and it's an important rule for the CEO tech startup crowd, you cannot talk about an app that you own or have invested in or designed or have equity in or anything like that. So first up on the, on the mic, Austin Manis, who's the COO of Harvest Returns. Austin? Thank you for coming. Hey, thanks for having us. So do you have an app that you really like a lot or use a lot right now? Uh, as far as like, uh, that's a tough one. There's so many. The one I probably use the most is is the calendar app. The um, calendar app, the, the calendar one that app. just comes built in on your phone. And, you know, whether it's Google or iPhone or that calendar app, it, it 
makes my day. You know, first thing in the morning, last thing in the evening. I got to know what's what's going to be the next. So I got I got to keep track of, um, especially with a company. I got to know what we're doing next, what we're doing next, and be prepared for it. Do you calendar everything? Pretty much everything. I mean, if I got to take my car to get an oil change, if I've got a phone call with a potential investor, if I've got uh, you know a doctor's appointment like anybody else, uh, I'm going to use it for everything. Even if it's just a simple reminder, make sure that you run this report or anything business related. Do you calendar your travel time or transit time in between meetings? Absolutely. I, I've got it nailed down to, I will take this mode of transportation from point A to point B. I have this hotel room. I have this show I've got to attend. I've got, I've got everything nailed down uh, with the flex time in there to make sure I, I, I can, you know, have some fudge factor in there. So when you look at your calendar in the morning or at night, is it just a solid block of stuff? Is there any white space? Uh, it, I plan white space. So the answer, that's a yes and no question. I have a block that says do not put anything here because you do need that time to just whether it's just flex in your schedule or you just need the me time, you know, get yourself, uh, get your head right, get yourself centered, be prepared for the next thing. So you got to while it's not technically white space, it is white space. You plan for that white space. Plan to have a break. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important. I have been recently thinking about my calendar and I always plan travel time to events, especially in New York City, especially because I take the subway quite frequently. If I either walking is my preference and the subway is my second favorite preference. But the subway can be challenging, which you don't know being from Texas, but we're having a very challenging era in the New York transit system right now where there's a lot of delays and people get stuck in trains and trains stop and they're rerouted and there's a lot of work. So I always plan in my transit going to things so I'm not late, but I often don't plan the transit for the trip home. So... That's interesting. Sometimes that doesn't work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> and usually when you're coming home, you're a little more, I've met my requirements now. It's just, let's, smell, let's smell the roses. Let's, let's get back to the house. Yeah. yeah, theoretically. Although I feel like when I get home, I usually have a bunch of stuff to do also. <laughs> His partner, Chris Raleigh, who's the founder and CEO. Chris, do you have a app that you like right now? I do. So Shaper, and people call Shaper the... The Tinder for business networking, because you oh. you literally... That sounds almost a little bit like an HR situation. Uh, it could be. <laughs> so, so you know, you put what your interests are. You know, it's a profile, like a dating profile. Not that I know that, because I've been married for 20-something years. Um, you, you put your interest. I'm looking for investors. I'm looking for employees. I'm looking for collaborators. And then you, you every day you get fed a... a spoonful of potential matches and you swipe left swipe right and you set up a, a coffee date or a lunch date and i've met some really interesting people and done a little business with people that we've actually met on shaper so i i recommend it s-h-a-p-r r one r not two or three r's right okay and are you using it on an android or apple i use it on an android do we know if it's we're assuming it's available for apple i'm pretty positive it's available for apple Okay. What is your number one discovery off of Shaper? So I, I've just met some people, um, both locally and nationally, and it actually will follow you. So if you're like, I'm in New York this week, I could Shaper and find someone that's interested in food and agriculture and what we do. Potentially. So it follows you by using geography, ge- your geotagging. Where, yeah, and it knows your, where you are. It knows where you are. Is that a little creepy? 
Yeah, but it's like any other app. You can kind of turn off that feature if you don't want to be creeped out. Did you read the New York Times story about data location tracking? I, I didn't, but I can kind of guess what you're going to say. We'll, t- we'll talk about it in the break. Yeah. It talked about how apps, when they do location tracking, even if it's anonymous, they had a case of a woman who was tracked several thousand times over the course of her day with so much specificity that you knew exactly who it was. Yeah, that because is it was creepy. so specific because it went from her home to her job to her, mm. you know, kids' school to this to that, and um, really astonishing the amount of information from the location tracking. Mm-hmm. Breathtaking. There's uh, interactive maps and everything. New York Times did a whole package around the story, so interesting. Might want to check it out. Also. We haven't heard from him in in a little bit because we've had a very full studio. We have our engineer in Mission Control who helps make the show amazing, Jeet Paul. How are you, Jeet? I'm good. How are you, Jenna? I'm good. Do you have an app that you like for us? Uh, Yeah, actually, I just got a new app called DU Recorder. DU, the letter D, the letter U? Yep, the letter D, the letter U, Recorder. And it's basically a screen recording app, so... You can record. Oh, so if you're playing a video or a story or yeah, a Snapchat also, or something like that. Right. And it also records audio, not just from what's playing, but I think it also records the audio. You can allow it to record audio from the microphone in your phone. So externally, as well as exactly. capturing as well whatever the audio is on the, on the medium Correct. you're playing on your screen. Yes. So you can capture for prosperity all those things that are supposed to disappear. Um, yeah. (laughs) 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 Is that what you're using it for or using it for something uh, else? So like, uh, because I do a lot of work producing bands and everything, uh, whenever I want to post on social media about the projects that I'm working on, a lot of times it'll have to be like in front of some speakers and it's like, well, that doesn't really represent the quality of work that I'm doing. So with screen recording, I can take a screenshot of maybe the album cover while the actual... Uh, high fidelity audio is playing and that is what I can post to social media so it gives uh, potential clients a little more of an idea of what I could do so you're using it like a little video studio editing hack Mm -hmm. to create media for yourself exactly I mean I could absolutely do it in you know Premiere Pro or something and uh, do it all correct but if I don't have time if I'm on the go then it's just really really fast and easy okay that's very cool Good to know. And for everybody out there who wants to capture all those fleeting video stories and social media doodads, there it is. There's the app for you. So Harvest Returns, crowdfunding for farms and agriculture. It's such an interesting idea. And I had not really heard that much about it as a platform. We've had a bunch of different platforms on this show, which are more traditional crowdfunding like Kickstarter or specialized crowdfunding like PyShell, which is specifically for food businesses, um, either product businesses or restaurant businesses, that kind of thing. Um, But farming and farm financing seems to be a really interesting and, and pertinent topic right now, especially because people talk so much about farmers being the new rock stars and people growing the amazing 
you know, produce and product we get at the green markets and, you know, things that are happening up at places like, you know, Blue Hillstone Barns with Chef Darren Barber and they're growing all kinds of amazing things and sort of the glamorous side of farming. But in a very practical sense, um, you also read headlines about American farms disappearing, about the meat, the average age of farmers getting higher and higher and young people not wanting to farm. And then you'll read a story about a group of young people who do want to farm and they'll go out and they'll try and find a farm. And then you read stories about, you know, things happening in politics, which are going to decimate farm finances and, and all these kinds of things. So on the one hand, I, I, there's this almost idyllic farmer storyline that we follow in the kind of food news, which is about all the beautiful heirloom things and chefs and, and that. But I do think that there's a very fundamental story about the farms and the financing on the flip side that we don't hear that much about in our, in our more uh, editorialized food space. So when I came across Harvest Returns, I thought it was really an interesting opportunity to talk about generally sort of a snapshot of the State of the Union for what's happening with farms and then talk about how crowdfunding can be of assistance because I I would not think necessarily crowdfunding for a farm off the cuff. When I think of crowdfunding, I really truly think of something like Kickstarter where I have a product idea, people are going to give me money. In return for their money, they're going to get the product or something related to it or a little doodad or maybe a t-shirt, you know, or stickers or something, or granola, you know, whatever it might be. And then that's kind of it. And then they get updates about how amazing the company's doing. But I've, I've not thought about it in terms of something like a farm, which is actually an established working business. So tell us a little bit just from a, a fundamental practical sense how does harvest returns work it's an online equity crowdfunding platform and and you mentioned that uh, you know you've had you've talked about several already um, crowdfunding has different flavors there are the social crowdfunding uh, when you think about a goFundMe account where you know grandma's sick you got to get those medical bills paid for can can some people friends and family help us out? The other side of that is the equity crowdfunding piece, and Kickstarter's uh, you know a good a good example. And then there's plenty more that are in the real estate space. So your Kickstarter, like you mentioned, there's a product. Buy this product at a certain price, you have some kind of tie into the company. With equity crowdfunding, it's a, it's a lot more about coming in as a passive investor into an operation. You're coming in, you're providing capital to an operation that's bringing you in as a as a limited partner. And so in the real estate world. Someone's have someone's got a great deal going. They're going to buy a property. They're going to flip it. They're going to turn it, and they're going to provide their investors with some kind of uh, return. Um, on the farming side, it's not very different, but it's just we're adding that agricultural flavor to it. So you have uh, a farmer who has an operation. Maybe he wants to update his equipment. Maybe he needs to get certified to be organic, non-GMO, something along those lines. Maybe he wants to buy more land and expand, but he needs that capital to do so. And the, and the farm financing world has not evolved in decades. They're still stuck within the debt world. And now here's this new opportunity, equity crowdfunding, to bring in investors, take a little bit of the risk off the farmer's shoulders, and, and, help, and the investors help that farmer share the risk. So historically and currently, the principal way a farmer could take on additional funding is really primarily through loans. And grants, the sort of basic loan and grant structure. Is that correct? 
that that's exactly right. And we talk to probably a half a dozen farmers a week, and they're really dissatisfied with the current system of, of farm financing. The, a lot of the loans are structured, whether even the, the government guaranteed loans are structured the same way their fathers and grandfathers. And we talk to a lot of multi-generational farmers that the same way the, these farms loans haven't evolved. Um, ag tech is evolving, you know, whether it's GPS, auto steer tractors, just the indoor agriculture, hydroponics, aquaponics, like Austin said, it's, it's evolving rapidly, but the loans themselves haven't changed. So we talked to farmers, um, multi-generational farmers, maybe they're young, they just graduated from college, they want to take over the family farm or build the family farm to that next level, but they can't do it because they've got student debt per the government loan terms. They don't have experience, even though that maybe they've been driving a tractor since they were six years old, they don't have the experience that those government loans require. So what we do is we come in and we, we work with those farmers to help them structure an offering that, that is nimble, agile, uh, responsive to what their particular needs are. And it, at the same time, it provides a investment that connects those investors at a pretty low price point with those farmers. So they get to know the story of the farmer, the farmer's family, they get to understand what's going on in the farm. They learn something new. Most people haven't invested in farming. Um, it's, a, it's a new asset class. Now, university endowments and pension funds, those, those institutions have been invested in farming for decades, really. But uh, you and I and people that take farming and the, the produce, of, uh, the, the results of farming for granted, we drink it, we eat it, we wear it, it's in our homes. Um, but most people don't invest, so that's what we do is we democratize those investments and make them accessible to the average investor. So you are talking now in your, your explanation of a, a bunch of different ideas and avenues that we'll, we'll try and unpack a little bit. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> financing is always really complicated, but maybe we can sort of pull apart some of the threads. So one thing that you talked about is that the system, the current system is very antiquated and it's not really nimble and it's not very responsive to what people need now. What is that? What what does having a nimble investment mean for a farmer? What is it about the current uh, legacy loan system that doesn't work for today's farmer? Because from one point of view, to point there are advances in in technology in terms of the agriculture and how things are harvested and all those types of things. Maybe there's a different point of view from the consumer side. But isn't farming still the same as it always was? You have some stuff, you grow it. You pick it at the right time, you process it, and you sell it. Yeah, fundamentally, of course, you, you know, people are growing things, but they're growing things in novel ways. And I talked about some of those ways, whether it's controlled environment, indoor agriculture. Um, and the way someone's growing something impacts their financing? Yeah, because a lot of these loan terms, the government guaranteed loans are designed to underwrite a certain type of, say, row crop operation. Like, oh, okay, you're a corn and soybean farmer and you've got a thousand acres and you're growing at this scale. And I know that uh, the, the yield you're producing and I know the, the, the value per bushel of your crop and I can project what those returns might be. So that's easy to underwrite. It becomes a little bit more complicated if you're saying, hey, I'm going to develop a hydroponics operation and a one-off sort of sort of operation where there's a lot of unique unique things and, and I heard a good term today is like we're, we're basically doing bespoke uh, investing so whether you're um, putting together that that 
that that sounds really fancy. It does sound fancy, but it's really it's really not simple. We're, we're giving the farmer options. Like instead of going into debt and putting your farm at risk by you know getting over leveraged, and when you have a bad year, it's going to be repossessed potentially by the bank. We're we've got investors who are patient, who are willing to put capital at risk. So um, not every farm is the same risk. Some are some are very low low risk, predictable, and others are are a higher risk, but people are willing to accept that risk because they know they're going to get a potentially higher return. So the production and the valuation equations of the current farming loan systems have not evolved to reflect the current forward tech and high tech and new tech production and valuation systems, along with probably different lines of equipment that would be required. That, that's exactly right. New, uh, modern, I won't say modern, but Agriculture is becoming increasingly capital intensive. So whether it's a $400,000 combine or a uh, you know a greenhouse operation that could cost several million dollars to put that together, it's not just hey we're going to go out, go out in the field and till it and plant seeds. That's that's agriculture hasn't been that way for decades, at least in the U.S. And I remember all that all the movies. I feel there was a I recall a, a trend of movies maybe in the eighties, the Save the Farm movies with mm-hmm. like Jessica Lang and sure. Mel Gibson and the big dramatic stories about the couple about to lose their farm and you know in the last minute something happens and they snatch it from the clutches of the evil banker. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the eighties. So in the eighties there were you know record wide bankruptcies in farmers because they they over leveraged they had too much debt and so today we don't see it to that extent but there there's probably a quarter you know a quarter of the farmers maybe half a million farmers in the u.s that their farms are at risk for bankruptcy because they're having to increase their leverage and that's due to a number of things it's due to you know low commodity prices it's due to globalization international competition so the the grain farmer in in Iowa or say Illinois is is not competing with the guy in the next county like he might be he's competing with that large industrial farm in Brazil so there's that that's making a big difference you know tariffs any anything you want to apply there's there's a lot of uh, threats to modern farming and providing a more frictionless source of capital is one of the ways we can kind of help mitigate that risk for farmers frictionless source of capital that's a really interesting uh, descriptor, frictionless. We have such easy money now for consumers, you know, Apple Pay and so many Venmo and so many easy ways to just transact money. Even Bitcoin is, you know, while it's sort of complex, it's, it's almost, you know, pulling money out of the air in some mm-hmm. respects. That it is interesting that there are so many industries that are really still bound by very old tenants and ways of viewing things. We are going to take a quick break. And, you know, we at Heritage Radio use one of the oldest forms of funding here. It is fundraising. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Did you know that? We're kind of like public TV. We keep the lights on and the mics hot exclusively out of the generosity of our members, who are mostly listeners like you grants, underwriters, and amazing sponsors like this one. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. 
Featuring a variety of interactive displays, MOFAD encourages eaters of all ages to be curious about food. The museum currently operates MOFAD Lab, a 5,000-square-foot experimental space in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Chow, making the Chinese-American restaurant, is currently on show until the end of March 2019. This exhibition celebrates the birth and evolution of Chinese-American restaurants, tracing their nearly 170-year history and sparking conversations about food culture, immigration, and what it means to be American. It highlights the evolution timeline of Chinese-American restaurant menus, dating back to 1910, and also highlights a tasting section where participants get to enjoy tastings created by the country's most talented chefs who specialize in Chinese-American cuisine. Make sure you check out Chow while you still can. The exhibition closes at the end of March 2019. Check out MOFAD's tastings and extensive event calendar at mofad.org slash events. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today, those innovators are Chris Raleigh and Austin Manis. They are the gentlemen running a company called Harvest Returns, which is crowdfunding for farms, which is an amazing idea. People are so interested and concerned about where their food comes from, and people seem really willing today to pay a premium for a better product and seem to be interested in helping businesses and helping people along. It seems like it's the right time for this. What type of response have you gotten from the public in terms of investing? So we've had... uh a lot of people come in, they register for our website, and they, they just they hear what we're doing, and they want to l- learn a little bit more about it. Obviously, there's there's a step from, hey, I'm going to register to I'm going to invest $5,000, $10,000, $100,000. So it's a little bit of a more significant buy-in than giving somebody $15 on Kickstarter. It is. And there's... You know, there's <laughs> uh, SEC qualifications and, and things like that, and it, it's it's... It's definitely investing. It's like any sort of investment. There's there's risk uh, involved, uh, whether and there's there's compliance and all those sorts of things that, that we have to wrap our arms around. But uh, we we've been really excited. Um, just a little anecdote. I I actually had lunch with one of our investors not too long ago, and we did a, a, a beef cattle um, operation, and he said. Chris, you know, I almost didn't invest in this. And I, I was wondering, so, you know, why not? Did you not like the numbers? Do you feel it's too risky? Um, why why would you not invest in this? And he said, well, it's because I'm a vegetarian. And I'm like, hmm, okay, that's interesting. That's validating for us, right? You took, you kind of not violated your principles, but you, you felt so strongly about this investment opportunity that that you invested in something you wouldn't actually eat the results of. So that, that was... A, 
an interesting story that kind of gave us that portrait of what our investors are thinking. So people can select the farms that they are investing in. It's not a generic or group pool or like an investment fund where you're, you've selected a group of farms. People can go in and once they've applied and completed the application to participate in the investing, they get to see all the farms that you're funding? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we wanted to set up a system that gives people that freedom to make the choice. You know, that with the big funds, the farm REITs, things that, that has existed already, you kind of hand your money over to someone and you're giving them that, hey, just, just put my money somewhere and, and make me a profit. And what we've set up, we want that person to feel that connection. We want that investor to feel like when they read an update from the farm, that they're sitting at the breakfast table with the farmer's family and they're understanding, today we got to do this. Tomorrow, Susie's got a basketball game. Timmy's got a baseball game. We've got to make sure that the hay's out. So we want them to feel like they're a part of the operation. They're a passive investor. So they're not really involved in the day-to-day business, but we are going to provide from that farm to the investor the sense that they are sitting right there, dirt under their fingernails. So an investor can come to the platform he, can, he or she can put all of their money into one deal, or they can pick and choose a little bit of cage-free eggs, a little bit of grass-fed beef, a little bit of hydroponic tomatoes. They can spread their own diversification out, and so within their ag asset class, they're diversified inside that class. And so we want to give that choice to the investor. That's a, so it's an interesting idea in that it is similar to the, the Kickstarter, the Pie Shell platform, where people can look through the different offerings and see what they connect with or what they're most interested in. Do you vet or have qualifications or requirements for the farms themselves in terms of how they're operating? Are they organic? Are they following, you know, fair trade, fair labor? Are they environmentally positive? Are they socially responsible? Are you do you have requirements or a philosophy or point of view about that as well, in addition to the, the financial need of the farm? Yeah, definitely uh, many more farmers approach us that uh, every week that we don't necessarily, they don't meet our criteria for one reason or another. And so our criteria are like, okay, number one, does this person, has she been farming? Does she come from a farming family? Does she have education? Can they grow what they're saying they're going to grow? Uh, number two is, is this particular crop and method of production going to be profitable for the farmer and for the investors? Because if it's profitable for the investors but not profitable for the farmers, uh, then that's not a deal that we can, we can do because we don't want to put people out of business. And number three is those sort of intangibles that you mentioned. It's like, okay, is this sustainable? Is, is it doing something positive for environment? Is it bringing jobs to rural communities? Is it keeping a farming family, multi-generational farming? Um, is it any other number of things that might be attractive to investors, whether it's organic, uh, low water consumption, close farm to table production, any of those sorts of factors? Just in rough numbers without you know, giving away actual numbers, but in terms of percentage, how many, what percent of farms do you think you turn away because they don't meet your criteria? 10, 15, 20%, 50%? Probably more like 90, 95%. Wow. So that many. Yes. That's amazing. We, we want to provide the investors with the highest quality product. 
Um, it's not that we don't want to work with most of those farmers. It's that we have to we have to provide the quality product. Many of our farmers will work with and help them with their financial situation, helping them understand what a business plan is, understand what their financial projections are. They may not actually make it to our platform to get in front of investors. And maybe it's just something as simple as that's not going to investors aren't going to bite on that yet, just yet. Maybe 10 years from now, maybe five years from now. We, we help them get to that situation so they can seek other forms of capital raise or maybe get a little bit of experience under their belt, come back in a couple of years, their numbers look a little bit better. We think it's a product that we can, that people are going to put some money down on. So we, yeah, that's a large number, obviously, that we're, we're screening out. Um, we're looking at farms all over the globe. And when it, when it comes to different operations and those screening criteria that Chris mentioned, we've got to make sure that we're taking care of our customer on the other side, too, is that's the investor. And we've got to make sure that um, we're following SEC compliance. Um, so that, that's a lot of the reason things get screened. Uh, we'd love to give everybody a chance. Well, we have to start somewhere. It's an interesting idea when you take the long view of it. If you are investing in farms, helping people invest in farms to sort of ensure their future, and you are selecting which farms you help for the future based on a criteria of different factors, you know, family, environment, social, social good, all those types of things. How do you feel about the idea that you may in fact be steering the future of you know farming in general and then steering the the collective food future with your selection choices i mean if you have a hundred farms and you're going to fund nine you've made a decision based on potentially what the future of you know farming looks like in many ways because those other farms may or may not make it so it's a very interesting idea it's exciting from one point of view. Is it ever a little bit daunting? Absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, that's sort of a big. That's could potentially be a really big deal. Sure, we're we're pioneers in this sector, and we're we're kind of paving the road as we go along, and and we want to be as inclusive and pos- as possible. We we hear from everything from farmers who come to us. I want to raise a hundred million dollars. It's like, okay, that's that's not our space. Go go somewhere else and, and find somebody who's going to write you a, an institution who's going to write you a hundred million dollar check to the Hey, I'm a farmer in West Africa, and I really just need five thousand dollars, and it's going to change my life in the course of our family. And we we'd love to do those sorts of operations. We're, we're not quite there yet because we we just haven't. Uh, you know, we've got to start somewhere. As Austin said, we've got to scale to uh, a certain quantity, bring on more investors before we can handle those sorts of up deals and and make them profitable for the investor and the farmer. Um, but agriculture is huge. It's ubiquitous. It's Yes, I want to be disruptive in this industry, and I want to farm, fund as many farms as we can, and, and fulfill the vision of as many farmers and entrepreneurs as we can. But I'm not not all that uh, concerned that we're we're um, changing the future of farming, other than to provide a very uh, creative and nimble source of, of capital. I don't know necessarily that it's something to be concerned about, but if you are successful on a large scale, you will absolutely be shaping the future of what types of farms survive or don't, or mm-hmm. at least a segment of them. It's a huge responsibility, and it's, we it's, absolutely do not take that lightly. It's a fascinating idea. Yeah, yeah. and in this, this idea, this concept, um, 
you know, it's been validated by a number of things that Chris had mentioned earlier, but this will revolutionize ag finance. And, and Chris and I both have held some severe responsibility in our past. We're both military veterans, Navy and Army, and we've held that responsibility in people's lives in our hands. And so we do not take that situation lightly. And you also come from a family of farmers. That's right. I, I grew up uh, with every second cousin, third cousin, great uncle, uh, grandparents uh, that had some kind of farm, some hobby, some uh, business related. I uh, walked around state farmer's market trying to help my great uncle sell his corn or his cantaloupes. I spent summers on my grandparents' farm riding horses, moving cows, uh, you know, moving goats around. And so I like that dirt under the fingernails, uh, work ethic that the farming community brings to our to our culture, to the, to the world, really. And and that's why I, I want this to happen, and, and we're going to work very hard to make it happen. So from the point of view of a person who actually has been the farmer and is the food producer, what do you think of the current sort of media and cultural popularity of farmer's market and farming and eat local, act global, you know, all those types of things? Do you think that is a realistic understanding of, you know, farming in our food? Do you think it's a little glamorized? Do you think it's absolutely on point and more people need to get on the bandwagon? Great question. We we hear stories from every side of the of the coin. Um, the the refocus, I sh- you know, call it the refocus because it's not something new. This is something that people did a hundred, a thousand years ago. They understood where their food came from. It's on the table. They're eating it. We went away from that, and now we're returning to that. And from the ag side, farmers, ranchers, timber lease owners are getting excited that people are looking back at their direction again. And so when we think about what goes into our bodies, that's something that our cultures did thousands of years ago, and we are returning to that. That is exciting. And some cultures actually still do. (laughs) We maybe just don't quite so much in America. I'm thinking about countries like France and Japan, where they have very specific labeling and seasonality on many of their food items. It's not just you know, what it is, you know, Dijon mustard, but it actually has to come from a specific place and be produced in a specific manner in order to carry that label. Japanese agriculture is very specific about exactly where something comes from and who made it and the process and what was done. And many things carry, you know, certificates of authenticity and things like that. So certainly culturally in the world, there are other countries and communities who you know value these types of things to the point of legislation and legal labeling and things like that it's not just sort of a genre somewhere in the united states i don't know i think it's industrialization or when there's this interesting break point where the luxury of food or it's being considered well off became something that was manufactured where then the store-bought thing had more value than the homemade thing, and people started to aspire to have the store-bought thing or the restaurant thing or the convenient thing versus the homemade thing. And then I think that's when we started to swerve away, where it was, oh, I wanted to buy it in a box or from the store. And then I think that's at that point where we diverged, and now we're coming back to the thing that's handmade, albeit maybe bought at a market or a store, or homemade is is starting to supersede those manufactured things in value. 
Yeah, our, God know Chris will agree with me. We're the greatest country in the world that ever existed. We, you know, we love where we are, and because over time and space and everything that that society has gone to, we've been able to put a few things on the back burner. We feel a little safer these days. Uh, we don't have to worry about um, sewage problems because we have a, a robust architecture, security, any of those factors that once upon a time affected indoor a lot of us. Air conditioning. Indoor heating, air conditioning. Once upon a time, the subway. It was, it even was a concern. It's a little janky these days. <laughs> it's still pretty amazing. So now that we hit some of these things, are kind of secondary concerns. The food and the source of what produced it kind of slid in there, and I think you're exactly right. The manufacturing process kind of put that on the back burner. I don't really need to worry about where I'm going to get my meal tonight because I can just walk down the street and get it. And I think that cost us something. And and now people are realizing it. The science is realizing it. We're turning back to that focus on, no, 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 no. If I'm going to put high-quality fuel in my automobile, I need to put high-quality fuel in my body. Mm-hmm. And so that focus is, is coming back. In, you know, and we, Farmers love it. We love it. And uh, we want to keep that momentum going. So you talk about being able to support uh farms that have been in families for generations and the legacy and the heritage of of certain farming properties. We also have a a small but emerging new farmer contingent, you know, young people who maybe do not come from that background who are interested in pursuing that just because, you know, they feel some of these things are important. How many new farms or new farmers have you heard from and how do you vet somebody who's not done it but is really enthusiastic and wants to you know, sort of dedicate their life and career to it. Yeah, so we, we hear from those people all the time that have a vision. They're, I call them agricultural entrepreneurs because that's, that's what we do. We, we, that resonates with us. And, and if they have a good plan and if they have, uh, you know, maybe they don't have a background in ag, but they have a background in some sort of business or producing you know, something, may not be, may not be food, uh, we will definitely talk to those folks and and work with them, especially if they're doing something innovative. We we like innovators if they've got a level of business savvy that's going to impress our investors. We we that generation of uh, exchange that's happening in agriculture. I think the average investor or the average age of a farmer is like fifty eight years old. So there is that transformation of. Uh, a new generation, whether they grew up in a farming family or 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 not, is is going on. And you know, to the last conversation, I didn't grow up in a farming background, and I was one of those people that took food for granted and farming for granted. Just hey, I'm going to go to this, this grocery or the restaurant or whatever, and and lettuce comes in a bag. It comes in a bag. Uh, <laughs> you know, brown cows make chocolate milk. And I, I didn't do that, but apparently, some percentage of the population thinks that. Um, so now that we have this opportunity to bring people, average people together with, with farmers and connect them to the food source, it's something that I, I think we, we really need to push. It's also empowering for people to be able to vote for what they believe in with their dollars and support what they believe in, even if it's on a small scale. Mm-hmm. For the public, you, you, at the top of the show, you talked about harvest returns, democratizing the process, and in what you were saying, it was about, I think, democratizing it for the farms and the farmers, but it also democratizes it for the public as well, because then the average person can have some say in what gets funded, and it's not just left to big banks or big institutions like universities and and things like that. So it's a really interesting moment in time, I think, when people 
you know, on both sides of the financing equation are really being empowered to do things that, you know, they believe in in a significant way. And maybe they have a return that's financial. But I do think that a lot of people are starting to look towards returns as being beyond finances and in that generational what you know they want for their kids or what they want to eat or what kind of world they want to live in tell us just real quickly we're almost out of time uh, this happens to me every time we don't have enough time we have a lot more stuff to talk about we only have 45 minutes i usually go a little bit late and it turns into 50 what's one of the really new interesting farm projects that you have right now that's on your offering maybe something new maybe a new farmer new generation new piece of technology what's so what excites us right now uh lots of things uh, all the farmers we, we talk to are, are pretty interesting and exciting but controlled environment agriculture is something that that we're seeing more and more of a, a higher demand for and there's a lot of reasons for that it from an investor side, it de-risks the investment. So the biggest risk to farming is weather, right? And there's also pests and in weather's turning out to be a big deal for a lot of people, right? And <laughs> and, and, and the climate and how that how that's impacting growing and all those things. So it, water scarcity is a big one, especially when we talk to the growers out in the West. So if you can g- grow the same products that you may have grown out in fields um, in an indoor controlled environment. That's that's big from an investment perspective. And then from the consumer perspective, sort of a triangle, you've got the investor, the producer, and the consumer. And the consumer perspective, they're getting fresher produce. It's traceable. So the, the whole romaine lettuce catastrophe yes. that happened a couple of months ago, that, that sort of thing is, is prevented because you know that leafy green was grown in this particular greenhouse that was delivered directly to this market or this restaurant, whatever the case may be. So you're taking out that risk on the consumer side, on the investor side, and then on the farming side. Yeah, that's a really interesting and exciting uh, piece of technology in agriculture. We just did a show with uh, one of the founders of Arrow Farms, which is mm-hmm. across the river in New Jersey. They are doing amazing things. Yeah, yep. And one of the interesting, com- it's, it's a great show, One of the interesting components about what they're doing is they are really pioneering some of the technology for this area. They are having a difficult time having employees and people who are understanding and skilled in some of these different tech areas. So they have an installation in one of the charter schools in Newark. School program, not just to help kids like salad more and understand about nutrition and where their food comes from and all those good things, but also really from a technological point of view of starting to educate people who need to have this tech knowledge to work in these, these new arenas. It's really an exciting, interesting time in the world of food tech, which is why we run out of time, but we always have great guests. I want to thank Austin Manis and Chris Raleigh from Harvest Returns for joining us all the way from Texas. If you are a farmer and want to learn more about them or you are an investor and want to get in on the action, visit them online, harvestreturns.com. You can follow them on Instagram at harvest-returns or on Twitter at harvestreturns, all one word, no space or punctuation. I want to thank you for listening to Tech Bites. We are 
on heritageradionetwork.org every Thursday at 11 a.m. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, your favorite podcasting platform. Our amazing tech theme song is Nomad's CPU Track by DJ Uptown Nico. Jeet Paul is our engineer. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, your host, and this is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.